If you've got a bulletin on the way in, there's an outline. You can follow along what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, open it up. Find Philippians chapter 1. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi, probably his favorite church of all the churches that he started. Our passage this morning is Philippians 1, 12 to 18. We're going to read it in just a minute, but before we really jump in, I just want you to look at chapter 1, verse 12. Our passage starts off with this verse. I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he's going to go on to continue that thought. But if you're going to make sense of this passage, you have to know what happened to him. And the Philippians knew what happened to Paul, so he didn't have to spell it out in the letter. He didn't have to detail it all. But we have to go back because we weren't there in Philippi. We didn't receive uh, this correspondence from Paul. Uh, Epaphroditus was not the guy that delivered the letter to us, so he couldn't fill us in on the details. We've got to just stop and ask ourselves, what was it that actually happened to Paul where he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel? So we'll start with this. Paul desperately, desperately wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus in Rome. That was one of his driving desires and hopes in life. You can look later at at Acts 19. Paul said, I must see Rome. This is like a bucket list thing. It's something that I've got to do. I want to go there. Not just to see the great architecture, not just to eat in the great restaurants, but I want to preach the gospel there. He said that as well in Romans 1.15. He wrote a letter to this church. He hadn't visited yet, but he sent them this letter and he said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He desperately, desperately wanted to visit this city and to preach the gospel. Unfortunately, his plans didn't exactly work out. He was accused, beaten, and detained in Jerusalem. And let me explain the background of that. Paul was wrapping up one of his missionary journeys And he had been collecting money for suffering Jewish people in Jerusalem. There was a famine. They didn't have anything to eat. He'd been collecting this offering, and he was taking this offering back to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem, and this is like his last stop. And he's in his mind, he's thinking, after Jerusalem, then I'm going to Rome. Okay, Drop the offering off, leave it with these people, then I'm going to Rome. And he wanted to go to Rome because Rome is this massive metropolitan city, and Paul's missionary strategy was to go to the biggest cities he could find, start churches in those cities, and let them reach out. So Rome is like the prize. It's the capital, it's the biggest city, it's metro, it's everything he was looking for, and he wants to go and he wants to start churches there. So he's stopping in Jerusalem, and when he's in Jerusalem, he has a friend with him named Trophimus. Trophimus was not Jewish. But he's traveling around with Paul. And all these people in Jerusalem who don't like Paul, they see Paul and Trophimus walking throughout the town. They're hanging out together. They're walking through the streets, walking by the temple together. And Paul's enemies realize we've got an opportunity. All we have to do is say that Paul took Trophimus into the temple, which he would not have been allowed to do because Trophimus was not Jewish. And if we say that, everyone's going to riot and they're going to be angry at Paul and we can put an end to Paul. So Paul didn't take him in there, you understand, but his enemies said, hey, we saw you and Trophimus walking around in the temple the other day, in the precincts. You're not allowed to do that. And as soon as they drop that accusation, a false accusation, a riot breaks out, Paul gets pummeled, he gets beaten for something he didn't even do, he gets detained, and 
immediately this plan of I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to Rome begins to be in question. So he's detained in Jerusalem. Next, I like this part of the story, a group of Jews took a food oath on Paul's life. You can read about that in the book of Acts. These guys were so angry at Paul, they hated him so much, they came together and they said, we're not going to eat another meal until Paul is dead. Now listen, I've made people mad in my life. I made a guy mad yesterday. He was refing a basketball game and I was coaching the basketball game and he looked over at me at one point and he told me to quit yelling at him. He was mad at me. Stop. But he didn't come to me afterwards and say, let me tell you something, buddy. I'm not going to eat another meal until you drop dead. (laughs) We just sort of went our separate ways and everything was okay. These guys say about Paul, I'm not eating another meal until you're dead. I always wonder what happened to these guys. Like, Paul lives for several years past this. And so you wonder, like, did they make it to dinner? Did they make it a few days? Did they make it a week? I don't know. I always picture these guys like they're Jewish guys, right? So they go to the synagogue. They don't go to the church. They go to the synagogue. And I'm guessing Jewish people are like Baptist people in that they like to have potlucks. So they go to the synagogue for the potluck, and they get in line with their plate, and everybody says, what do you think you're doing in line? You, you don't get to eat. Paul's still living. But these guys are so mad, they're so outraged at Paul that they say, we're not going to eat again until Paul's dead. Okay, next. Paul ends up in Caesarea. They sort of get him out of Jerusalem. They take him to Caesarea. And Luke drops this detail. You can read about it in Acts 24, 27. He just says, they kept him there for two years. This is a guy who lives his life on the go. Always on the move. I got a mission trip planned. When this one's done, I got another one. I'm going to Rome. After I go to Rome, I'm going to use Rome as a springboard to go to Spain. He's on the move. He's on the go. He's ready to share the gospel. He never sits still. And Luke says, for two years, they lock him up in Caesarea, and he just waits. He just sits. Luke doesn't really explain to us what Paul felt about this or thought about it, but I imagine this was, to be just real blunt, I imagine this was like hell on earth for Paul. To just sit and to not be able to go, not be able to move, not be able to talk to people about Jesus. He had a few conversations with a guy named Felix and a guy named Festus, but for the most part, for two years, he just sits. It's like the detail about Joseph in the book of Genesis, where he thinks the cupbearer is about to pop him out of prison, and then Moses just says, and then he waited two years. He just sat there in Caesarea. His next move was an appeal to Caesar. He determined, I guess, after two years he wasn't getting anywhere. And so he said, I'm going I'm to appeal my case to Caesar. Any Roman citizen had the right to do that. And on the way to see Caesar, to have his case heard by Caesar, he shipwrecked on the trip across the Mediterranean. And you can read about the details in Acts. Literally, the ship breaks up, everyone goes overboard, and he swims for the nearest land for him, which is an island called Malta. And he spends about three months on Malta before he finally gets to Rome. When he gets to Rome, he's placed under the imperial guard, or sometimes it's called the praetorian guard. Okay, there was 9,000 of these guys in Rome. They were like the special forces for the emperor, right? These guys received double pay of a normal Roman soldier. 
These guys received a double pension when they retired. They got a little piece of land to move out to. They were set up for life, but their job was tough, and they had all sorts of strange responsibilities, and one of them was physically being chained to prisoners who were awaiting trial. So when he gets handed over to the Imperial Guard or the Praetorian Guard, literally four-hour shifts, guys rotating through. Paul's got a chain on this side. The guards have a chain on this side, and they're chained to him 24 hours a day. Paul doesn't get to take the chains off, but they're rotating. And that's how Paul ends up in Rome. I got to think that as Paul is having his quiet time with the guy chained to his arm, that he's talking to God and he's saying something like, God, I know that I wanted to come to Rome. I know I've been praying about that. I know maybe I've been bothering you about that. But this is not exactly what I had in mind. Chained to a Roman imperial guard. Kind of like the guy, you've seen the commercial where he finds a a lamp with a genie and he rubs it and the genie comes out and he says, what's your first wish? And he says, I want a million bucks and a deer as far as you can see out on the front lawn, you know? And he says, that's not exactly what I had in mind. This wasn't what I was talking about. And you can almost see Paul. He's been telling people. He's been praying about it. I want to go to Rome. I've got to see Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to the people who are in Rome. And lo and behold, here he is in Rome as a prisoner. I don't know about you, but you would expect a man in that position to be disappointed, to say the least. Maybe a bit discouraged. I don't even think it would be unusual or unexpected for him to be depressed. When you read about Paul and all of the things that happened to him, that's what he says in Philippians 1.12, what has happened to me, he's not really disappointed and he's not discouraged and he's not depressed. And the key to Paul's frame of mind is the big idea of our passage this morning. It's very simple. Paul rejoiced when the gospel of Jesus was proclaimed. Verse 12, he talks about the gospel advancing. Verse 18, he talks about Christ being proclaimed. And he sums it all up at the end and he says, In that I will rejoice. We've talked about that word and we're going to talk about it every week in this series. He is worshiping with joy. Worship is an action. It's something he chooses to do. Joy is an attitude. It's not just an emotion that sort of comes and goes, but it's an attitude that he chooses to have. And he says, despite all the things that have happened to me, because the gospel of Jesus is being proclaimed, I'm going to rejoice. So with the big idea out of the way, let's read the passage. Verse 12 down to verse 18. The word of God says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that 
I rejoice. Let's pray. Father, give us understanding this morning. Help us to see truth in this passage. Help us to see how it applies to our lives. Father, where we need to change, where we need to repent, where we need to be different, we pray that you would work that in us. Where we need to trust and have faith, we pray that you would grant it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very simple. I want us to ask one question to sort of break down the passage and then think about applying it to our lives. So the question is this. How did the gospel advance through what happened to Paul? That word advance is interesting. I read about it this week. It describes the foot soldiers who went before the Roman army when they were on the march, and their job was to clear out the brush, right? The army is marching, the army's on their way, but first you've got this sort of advanced team of soldiers that would go and prepare the way, knock down the trees, clear out the brush, make room for this massive group of soldiers to come through. And Paul uses the exact same word, and he says the gospel has advanced. How did it advance? Two simple ways. Number one, gospel became known throughout the whole imperial guard. Paul talks about that in verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Look, just to be really blunt, every time the clock strikes and these guys roll through on a four-hour shift, Paul's got a new guy chained to him. There's 9,000 men who have this job in Rome, so there's a pretty good pool of guys rotating through. And every time those shackles close on that next wrist, Paul says, I got a captive audience. I got somebody that I can tell about Jesus. And he looks at that guy whose job it is to make sure Paul doesn't run off somewhere, and he says, do you know why I'm in chains right now? I'd love to tell you the story. And he begins to talk to them about Jesus Christ. And that happens day after day, shift after shift, soldier after soldier. And eventually these guys talk to each other in the break room and after work and they're down at the club hanging out together and they say, man, I had to be chained to Paul. The guy wouldn't shut up. He just talked for four hours straight about Jesus, nonstop, letting me have it. And pretty soon the whole guard knows if you've got that duty, you better get ready for a near fall because Paul's going to talk to you. It's amazing to me that he's not pouting. I know myself, and I know that I would be prone to pout and to say, I don't like being chained to these guys. And you see the, you see the guards come, and you say, Man, I don't like being chained to this guy in particular. I don't want to be around these people. I don't want to be here in Rome for this purpose. I wanted to come to Rome, but I just wanted to leave Rome and go for Spain. I wanted to come to Rome, but I wanted to preach in the churches. I didn't want to sit here chained to a guard the whole time. Paul looks at it differently. He trusts in the sovereignty of God. He believes that God has a plan. He, he knows that this is not outside of God's control. And he says, I don't know, to me this looks like an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Here's the thing. I don't know how you think your life is going to go over the next, let's say, three, four, five, seven years. I kind of have an idea in my mind where I think, okay, three years out, this is what's going on. Five years out, I can expect this. Seven years out, you probably do the same. But I also know that if I look backwards at my previous plans of how my life has worked out, I haven't been a very good guesser. And stuff comes up like illness and sickness that I didn't plan on. Maybe people come into your life, family members that you didn't count on, or maybe family members leave your life that you didn't count on. 
Maybe you think you've got a career path or a school path laid out in front of you and you just see it step by step. You know how it's going to go. And I'm just telling you, it may not go that way. But what I can guarantee you is that over the next five, six, seven, ten years, there's going to be stuff in your life that derails your plans. And when that happens, not if, but when it happens, you kind of have a choice. You can sit and be bitter about it and complain about it and whine about it and tell everybody how, how horrible this turn of events has been for you. Or you can get over it and say, look, I trust in the sovereignty of God that he knows what's going on and he knows what's best for me. And the place that he's put me right now is a place where he's given me opportunities to talk to people about him. You know people who have made the other choice. They're miserable people to be around. Miserable. They're the worst witnesses for Jesus Christ that you can ever imagine. The people who complain constantly and whine constantly and they feel like the world's against them. So you can go that route. You can go the route that Paul went and you can say, I believe that God has me right where he wants me and if I'm stuck here chained to a guard, I might as well talk to him about Jesus. I might as well do what God has commanded me to do regardless of where I am, regardless of how my plans have got flipped on their head. So number one, the gospel is known throughout the whole imperial guard. Number two, and this one's interesting, Paul says the believers in Rome became much more bold. I looked it up this week. I don't know if it's more bold or bolder, which one you're supposed to go with, but you get the idea. They are more bold in their faith. And Paul says it in verse 14. They're confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And he goes on in verse 15, 16, and 17, and he sort of describes two scenarios, and he goes back and forth between them. He says, on the one hand, there's believers out here in Rome, and they're more bold, and they're the guys and the gals that love me, that care about me. And they're looking at my imprisonment, And they're seeing how I'm faithful to share with these guards and how I'm not complaining about it and I'm not blaming God for it. And my faithfulness in this situation has inspired them to be more bold. Let me give you a a real-world example of how this has played out in the United States. Some of you remember in the 50s there was a group of missionaries who left. They were all graduates of Wheaton College. They left Wheaton, graduated Wheaton, and they said, we're going to go overseas and we're going to take the gospel to this tribe of people, the the Alka tribe, or sometimes called the Waroni tribe. And they go as a team with their families, their spouses, and they say, we're going to take the gospel to these people. They're savage people. They're headhunters. They kill people. They murder. They're a warring tribe, but they need Jesus, and we're going to be the ones that go and take it to them. And so these guys went, uh, Ed uh, Fleming, Pete McCauley, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, these five guys go. And they finally make contact with these guys they want to share the gospel with. They meet on this beach, and there's some photos taken of right when they land. They fly this plane into this little beach, and they land there, and they get out. We don't really know exactly what happened next, except for the men that they were trying to share the gospel with speared all of them to death. And they all died right there on the beach. Left behind wives, left behind children, left behind ministries, families. And you look at that on the surface and you say, that's a terrible tragedy. That's the worst sermon story ever. These guys give their life for Jesus and they go and they make this great sacrifice and then they just die and nothing ever ever happened. They didn't get to see the fruits of it. Here's what happened. 
Most of their family members stayed and continued to go and to share the gospel with these people, and many of them got saved, even some of the ones who had killed these missionaries. But in addition to that, back in the United States, this story starts to spread around, and many believers hear that, and they become more bold, and they say, I, I need to go. Especially at Wheaton, on the campus of Wheaton, where these guys had graduated. Five go out, and they die. More than five took their place. Dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds. If you go outside of Wheaton College, you say thousands of missionaries today would say to you, I gave my life to go to the mission field because I heard this story and it inspired me to be more bold. That's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. What has happened to me? False accusations and this imprisonment and the beatings and all the rest It has made these other people more bold in their faith. And he rejoices in that. But then he comes around, and I wish there was a nice way to describe this, but he just says, some of them share the gospel out of envy, this is verse 15, and rivalry. Some of them out of goodwill, they love me, but some of them out of envy and rivalry. There's no real nice way to describe this, so I'll just say it like it is. These were Christians, they were real believers in Rome, and they find out that Paul has now been locked up. This this big-time, marquee conference speaker was coming to their town, right? Everyone was excited. Paul's going to stop in Jerusalem, and then he's coming here. I cannot wait to hear Paul. I've always wanted to hear Paul. Paul's the best. We've heard so many great things about him. We can't get on the internet and download his sermons or his podcast. We've got to have him here. They're all excited. He shows up in chains, and all these other preachers say, well, I guess I get to headline the conference. I guess I get to do the speaking. I guess I get the market share, and the people maybe will come to my church or my event Listen, if you don't think that's preachers, you don't know preachers very well. We're very human. And if you don't think that preachers care about spotlight and people coming and struggle with that issue, you ought to sit down and have an honest conversation with them because we all do. All. And any preacher that looks at you and says he doesn't is just lying to your face. It's a real struggle. And these guys say, hey, Paul's in prison? That means I get a step up. I get a little more attention. I get a little more time with my name in the spotlights. And look, it's probably not just the preachers, but it's the other churches. You don't think that there are church members in Odessa who hear about another church across town crumbling or struggling and get a little bit excited thinking, maybe they'll come to our church. Maybe that church will fall apart and they can come to our church. You don't think that happens? That happens all the time. And Paul says, look, there's some people out there. They're preaching Jesus, but they're doing it from envy, and they're doing it from rivalry. They're sort of doing it for their own agenda, for their own purposes. And this is the crazy thing. Are you ready? Paul says, I rejoice in that. For the ones that have just been inspired by my boldness and they love me, I rejoice in that. For the ones who are preaching the good news of Jesus, even though they're doing it from mixed motives, He says, I rejoice in that, and I celebrate that. And there he is in prison, chained to that guard, cheering them on from the sideline. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's think about application. How do we apply this to our lives? A couple of ideas. Number one, 
Sometimes we suffer for no other reason than the spread of the gospel of Jesus. Sometimes we suffer for no other reason than that the gospel might spread. And I want to be really careful here, okay? I do not want you to hear me say all of our suffering is only so that the gospel can spread. Because when you read the Bible and you read about suffering, it's a complex issue. Very complex. Sometimes suffering in the Bible is just the result of our own stupid decisions. Can you own that? I need to own that. Sometimes that's what it amounts to. You did something foolish, and there's a consequence for that. Sometimes suffering in the Bible is God trying to teach you something in a positive way, trying to establish you and and strengthen you in your faith. And sometimes, the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs talks about this, sometimes suffering is God disciplining his people, trying to get your attention and sort of grab you by the spiritual shirt collars. Sometimes suffering in your life is not the result of your stupid decisions, but somebody else's stupid decisions. But I just want you to have a category in your mind, because this is what Paul's describing. Sometimes suffering in our life is for the sole purpose that the gospel of Jesus might spread. That God puts you in an uncomfortable, unplanned, unexpected situation and circumstance because there is someone that he wants you to talk to Jesus with, about. He wants you to open your mouth. And if you hadn't been put in that position, you wouldn't have ever had that opportunity. Those are the opportunities you will miss if you get angry and you get bitter and you feel sorry for yourself and you throw a pity party. Those are the opportunities that Paul's talking about here where he says, look, I don't want to be in prison. I don't want to be chained to this guy. But if I am, I'm not going to blame God for it. I'm not going to complain about it. And I might as well do what I came here to do, which is tell people about Jesus. So so he does it. Second application is this. God can use you in spite of your weaknesses and in spite of your circumstances. Paul is a traveling evangelist. He's a missionary on the move, talking to people about Jesus, wanting to go to places where they'd never heard of Jesus. And he finds himself in this multi-year process of imprisonment. And I can't imagine that he just at times didn't say, I feel totally useless where God has me. If God could get me out of here and I could do what I'm used to doing, then I could be used by God for his kingdom. But what can I do here? And some of you may say, you know, I'm in a circumstance in a situation where I just don't know that God can use me a whole lot. You may not say that out loud because it sounds kind of bad to say it out loud, but you might really be thinking it. You might think, you know what, I'm just chained to my desk. You don't know how many hours I have to work. I can't get away from the desk. It's just work, 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 work. I don't know that God can use me in this situation very much. It's not like I'm a preacher. It's not like I'm a missionary. I'm just sort of stuck here. Some of you may say, you know, I'm stuck at home with kids. How can God use me? I'm just, I'm stuck. I'm at home. This is my world. It's hard to get outside of it. I don't know that that he can use me very much right now. Some of you, it may be a health problem. You may say, I'm chained to the proverbial sickbed. How can God use me? I can barely get around. I can barely do this. I can barely do that. And you see in this story of Paul, chained to a prisoner, not able to do what he really wanted to do, that God can use you in spite of your weaknesses and in spite of your circumstances. It didn't slow God from using Paul one bit. 
It reminds me of Susanna Spurgeon. You've all heard of Charles Spurgeon, but you probably never heard of his wife, Susanna. They got married. Charles started preaching. His name explodes in London. He's super, super popular. And almost from the get-go, she's bedridden. Just spends most of her life in bed sick. Her husband is the most popular preacher in the entire world. His sermons are printed weekly and distributed literally all around the world, wired to the United States because people want to read them so desperately. Everyone knows who he is. God's using him. There's Susanna, sick at home. But while she's sick at home, she starts a book ministry for poor pastors, and it starts out really small. Not a big deal, not a lot of fanfare, but she says, you know what? My husband's blessed. He's able to get books. He's able to study. There's some guys out there that that don't have access to books. What if I could start something that would just put books in their hands? She starts it, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And by the time she dies, she has helped tens of thousands of pastors all around the world get their hands on good quality books that they would have never been able to get a hold of without her. Stuck at home in a sickbed. And I'm not telling you you have to start a book ministry for poor pastors. I'm just saying, whether it's Susanna Spurgeon or whether it's Paul chained up in Rome, God can use you in spite of your weaknesses and in spite of your circumstances. Number three, there's no room for rivalry among those who truly preach the gospel. It's kind of redundant to say truly preach the gospel, but I'm being redundant for emphasis. There's no room for for rivalry among those who truly preach the good news of Jesus. What is that good news? Very simple. You've heard me say it a thousand times. There's a God who made everything, and that God is holy, holy, holy. He's different than us. He's set apart from us, and he does not take sin lightly, which is a problem for us because we are sinners by birth By deed, by thought, by action, we're wicked, sinful people, according to the Bible. All of us are that way, Romans 3.23, and all of us deserve death, Romans 6.23. The consequence, the payment, the wages for our sin is death. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that God made a way for sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God when Jesus, God himself, took on human flesh, and died as a substitute, as a sacrifice for our sins. When we repent of our sins, we turn away from them, we put our faith in Jesus, and we believe the truth about what the Bible says about him, we're forgiven, we're made right, we're restored in a relationship with God. If a church or a pastor or a person is preaching that message, there's no room for rivalry. Here's the problem. Not all really preach that message. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia and they had taken that message and put it up on the shelf and replaced it with the message that said you need to be a good person and you need to do this and this and this if you want to be saved. You've got to earn it and pay for it. And Paul wrote a letter to that church and if you've never read it, you should read it. There's rivalry. There's conflict. Paul's angry. He's not mincing words. He's furious at these people for abandoning the gospel. What's remarkable is that when his enemies, who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, preach the true gospel, their hearts are twisted, just like mine is. But they're preaching the true gospel, and Paul says, I can get behind that. 
Maybe you're doing it just because you want to rub it in my face and you want to headline the conference and you want the attention and you want the bigger church. That's fine. Just preach the good news about Jesus. Don't change it like the Galatians. Don't add to it. Don't put something in there that doesn't belong and don't water it down. Don't make it less than what it is. But if you're truly going to preach the gospel, Paul is absolutely on board with that and he's cheering these people on. That leads me to number four. The gospel will set you free from a petty preoccupation with your own comfort, security, and pleasure. When you understand the good news about Jesus Christ, that through Jesus, the holy God has done everything that needed to be done to bring you back into a relationship with himself, when you get that and what it means for your life, you will be set free from this petty preoccupation with your comfort and your safety and your own pleasure. You see that in Paul's life, and you see it in people's lives who truly get the gospel. Sin has a way of taking your world and shrinking it down to the size of your own life. Has a way of just sort of shrinking you down to you so that all you can see and all you can think about and all you can care about is yourself. You forget that there's a world out there that is in desperate need of good news. And all you can think about is you, 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 you. Sin will do that to you. Any sin. Leave it unchecked in your life for a few weeks, for a few months, for a year. And your world, this big, huge world, all you'll care about is the little bitty tiny circle you can draw around yourself. And when you get the good news of Jesus Christ about what God has done for you and his grace and and your mercy and what God wants to do through you for other people, you stop being so concerned with you and you look outward to other people. Listen to me. When you get the gospel, it will make you a strange kind of person. Strange. The kind of person who finds himself or herself chained for something you didn't do, and who rejoices. That was Paul not just in Rome. That was Paul all the time, right? That was Paul the first time he went to Philippi, wasn't it? He gets falsely accused of sort of trying to destroy these people's business, this this means of income. He gets thrown in prison. He's beaten. He's in the inner stocks. And what does he do with Silas? They have a hymn sing. They rejoice. And Paul does the same thing when he winds up in Rome. It changed him. It made him into a different kind of person. The gospel will do strange things to you, like making you more bold. Even when you know that boldness is what caused the problem for someone else in the first place. Like these believers in Rome, they look at Paul and they say, Paul is so bold. Look where it landed him, in prison. What does it make them do? I'm going to be more bold. Well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any more sense than a bunch of college kids at Wheaton saying five of us went out and died in South America. Now we all want to go too. The world looks at that and says, what are you thinking? But the gospel makes you into a strange person. The gospel makes you into the kind of person where even if you're a strong leader, even if you're used to sort of being the headliner and and the leader, you look at other people who are trying to manipulate and be envious and, and create rivalries and you say, look, I don't care about all that stuff. I just want you to go preach Jesus. You can have all the attention. You can be your name and lights. I don't care. I just want Jesus to be proclaimed. 
And that's what Paul's talking about. He's been set free from this petty preoccupation with comfort, security, and pleasure. One last idea. The gospel of Jesus was central to Paul because he believed people were really lost and Jesus was really worth it. You may have noticed in the passage that in every verse in our passage, 12 to 18, you will either read the word gospel or you read Jesus or a title for Jesus. In every single verse, it's like he's obsessed with this gospel of Jesus. He comes back to it over and over and over again. He won't drop it. And if you go back and you read the rest of chapter 1, you'll see he mentions Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. He won't stop talking about him. Why? Because he understands the people that he's writing to, the people he's trying to reach, they are really lost apart from Jesus. They have no hope. And he understands Jesus is worth it. For what he has done in my life and what he wants to do in your life, Paul doesn't look at these chains or his imprisonment or any of these sufferings as a sacrifice on his part. The sacrifice has been made by Jesus. And Paul says, whatever you want for the rest of my life, you're worth it. And he makes himself available joyfully and rejoicing. So that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself this morning. And with that, let's pray together. Lord, we know that we're prone to be selfish and self-focused and self-absorbed, to worry about, number one, ourselves before anyone else, anything else. Father, we know that the sin in our lives boils our vision down to just we can't see past our own noses. So we pray that as individuals and as families here and as a church family, that you would set us free from the pettiness of being preoccupied with ourselves. Help us to see the big picture of your grace and the gospel, of what you want to do in our lives and what you want to do through our lives. Father, I pray for folks in the room who maybe have never trusted in Jesus, and I pray this morning that they would see in Paul's example that he is worth it. I pray that they would hear the, the words that we've sung this morning and they would, they would run to Jesus as their Savior. Father, be honored as we sing and as we lift our voices, as we respond to the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.